Welcome to the Triathlete Hour. I'm your host, Kelly O'Mara, Editor-in-Chief of Triathlete Magazine. And I'm joined again this week by Laura Sedal for Sid Talks, where we chat about that time of year when sponsorship contracts all seem to change. What are companies looking for from their pros anyway right now? And what do fans want to see from pro athletes? Plus, the winter off-season trends were spotting. And then after that, longtime USA Triathlon board president and a World Triathlon board member, Barry Siff, joins us to talk about how he first got into triathlon in Omaha back in the 80s, how he was on one of the first sponsored teams, why he started adventure racing next, and some of his craziest hallucinations during multi-day races, what he learned from leaving a job as a top food industry exec and starting a multi-sport race company, and how he's looking for inspiration in what's next. Stay tuned for all of that. All right, we're back this week with Sid Talks by popular demand. Laura Sedal. <laughs> I've been I've been paying everyone. My mum's voted in several times. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Laura Sedal's going to give us all the scoop on like triathlon, pro triathlon around the world. And Laura, this week, ugh, it feels like every other Instagram post is a pro announcing a new sponsorship, announcing the end of an old sponsorship. This is like the time of year. Why does it all happen? right now like all these sponsorship contracts sponsorship announcements i know well yeah it's funny isn't it and you kind of you get sucked into social media and you start reading them going oh maybe i should have done some more work around this at the end of the year i think look look, a lot of it goes on the finite like the calendar year so contracts run to like the 31st of december and in a normal year most contracts would be negotiated around kona and kona performances as much as they probably say that's not the case i think that's when those back end of the years when budgets are being looked at and also, um, yeah, performances in Kona and the world championships kind of dictate then going into the next, the next year. Um, so that's why I think we see a lot of that flurry of relationships. It's also kind of that end of year, everyone says thank you to sponsors and, you know, start afresh and, and that sort of thing. So it's, and I think this year, I mean, it's been weird to, I mean, I'm sure there's more, much more expert people out there studying the sponsorship market, but just strange from a, with everything that happened last year and not having the races and how, or how businesses have stood up with, with COVID and with everything that's happened to the economy, like what they're then, how that might have changed their strategy. So were companies looking to move away from triathlon anyway, or were they looking to get into triathlon and then what's their their market audience has that changed with what's happened over the last 12 months and going into into the into 2021 and beyond yeah i mean we were talking about this but what we're hearing a ton from like our end is a lot of companies they're interested in gravel bikes they're interested in like getting people out on road bikes on mountain bikes they are not interested in selling top end triathlon bikes it's just like not <laughs> so a lot of companies <laughs> pull back from that and you're seeing that reflected in some of the sponsorship contracts some of the companies that are dropping people or, or ending yeah. contracts or, or clearly getting think, out of space. I think it's been interesting because like you've seen over this last year that the biking and, you know, we had all those reports from Strava about activity levels being increased around the world through, through 2020 and through lockdowns and more people getting out, walking, running, digging those bikes out from the back of the garage or buying a bike. But, and so you'd like to think, so that kind of gave you this impression that the bike industry was booming and yes. it was, it was, and it was really positive. And so then all of us as triathletes went, okay, it might not be too bad after all sort of thing. But actually the bike industry that was booming was the entry level cycling bike or the mountain bike or the gravel bike, which could potentially like cross a whole range of different uses for that person that's just starting, wants to get around their village or wants to start cycling to get out of lock, you know, use their hour a day out of lockdown. Or you and can I ride the bike to triathlon too. That's or, you can, exactly, or you can ride, I did, I did my foot, my first triathlon was on a hybrid mountain road bike with um, flat bar across and I'm doing the actions, which no one can see on a podcast. <laughs> and I had trainers on, I didn't have clipping, clipping yes. um, shoes and I had trainers on and yeah, that was my first first try I yeah and it was fine well I decided I wanted to get another bike after that but it suited me for the first and I had it for a few months um but yeah I think for the 
the general person that's getting into sport for the first time, that's where the market's boomed. And it hasn't been, it hasn't yet then gone up to that, the top tier racing bikes or the triathlon bikes, which is obviously a very specific market. I mean, hopefully we were saying this last week that with the increased numbers of people taking up running and cycling, maybe over the next few years that will then transfer up as they maybe come into triathlon and they do want to get a bit more involved and they pick different races and maybe that then we, we might maybe we'll see that hopefully we'll see that ongoing effect up to the maybe the triathlon end of the market for, for sure and I mean, to be clear the other half of this is like what we are hearing from my companies is they're out Oh, that was very loud. Something happened. But what we are, we are hearing from companies is that they're out of triathlon bikes. Like they don't have the inventory. They're so, so at the same time, like there is an impact, there is a a demand. But yeah. when we talk about pros, you know, what for for a company, the question becomes like, what value does a pro have? Why give them a contract? And then the other thing is what we don't see as a public is what that contract entails. You know, if 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 a company is dropping like a really big name and picking up another name they're probably paying less for it, right? Like yeah. you pay, pay a premium for the people you can name firsthand, Jan, Daniela, Lucy, like those yeah. are the people you put a lot for. And it's, and it's also, and this again, social media is also really deceptive because you have different pros as well and not an age groupers as well, but different pros value contracts in a different way. So some people might be just be getting product from a company and yet they will put their logo on the front of their race suit. So it looks like they have a huge contract because for most people that space on your race suit is like paid, a paid a stipend or, or a cash part of that component. So it looks like they're on a, maybe a bigger contract than they might actually be on. And it's how, and that's then really difficult because there's no, there's kind of no standardization across, the professional field either in term and obviously like the bigger names it's a bigger amount of money that's needed to get their logo on the suit which you know that kind of makes sense but when you get down to the the other end of that it's like how do you it's really hard to know what those contracts are and you know the athletes obviously want to do the best by the brand and the spot the partner that's supporting them and like promote them in every way they can um and yeah it's just that hard balance of where what what is actually behind that and and what are we seeing on social media and i mean the other thing because you kind of mentioned this before was like this year was weird there weren't races and a lot of a lot of your value as an athlete obviously comes in race results but increasingly even before covid it came in other things right like brands wanted people who had a platform had a youtube channel had like great social media presence had a following um but then like one end of the spectrum you could win everything and not be on social media at all, and you'd get a contract. Yeah. Or you could be like a, a YouTube influencer and not win anything and get sponsored. And yeah. now like pro athletes are trying to do both, and it's it's tricky. It, it is, and I think also, um, it is, yeah, it's really hard. And I think a lot of pros and, and a lot of athletes, tri you know, triathletes, I think what you've, you've said before, you know, if there's no races, are we triathletes kind of thing? Are we just sort of swim, bike, run exercises? And I think probably last year, a lot of us and a lot of people like was questioning what if I can't race, you know, what is my value and what is my my why or how do I provide that value back? And um and it is there is that element that now it's not just yeah, the, the bigger package of providing value to a brand is more about who you are. Can you, you know, can you are you a genuine do you have genuine fans who you genuinely take the time and engage with and build that content and build that rapport um and can you yeah but but it's hard because I I mean it is part of the job like so as a professional you do have to look at yourself as a brand rather than just as racing but a lot of people like if you don't have somebody that can take those good photos or that good content or you don't have the time you know editing videos takes a long time to do it really well and so at the ultimately at the end of the day you could say as a professional our jobs to race races and yes we have to do all this but it's it that's time consuming to do and it's another skill to do it's a bit it's a similar like i think a lot of contracts have changed in the last few years as well and a lot are going to more that 
and maybe the base salary is less, but it's worked on like a referral fee of sales from that product. And the professional will get a percentage back if they sell um, products using that, you know, their own personal referral code, which, you know, I understand and I get because ultimately with working with a brand, you're there to help sell them, sell their product. But at the same time as well, we're not sales reps or salesperson. Like that is a full-time skill and job in its own hand. And yes, I am going to work my butt off to promote the product that's supporting me because I believe in it. That's why, you know, that's my values and why I'm with that that brand because I believe in it. So I am going to try and support and well and work with them that way. But I'm an engineer as well, <laughs> and you know, and British, and I'm not great at that, like, hard hard sell fact which is often what they're also wanting or that's often how we now can earn the extra money to help us do the sport if that makes sense yeah interesting um I like knew everybody had gone to kind of referral codes but yeah it's a weird balance between (laughs) between what you can offer to a sponsor and also like what the help like the audience the fans actually want you know because everyone, I also, I mean, as a fan, as a regular trash, I'm also like sick to death of all the Instagram posts telling me <laughs> this product is amazing. Hashtag. And, that, and, and that's really hard because with all your, with all your, the posts and stuff, you also want to be really genuine about the brand and you don't want it to come across like you don't want, let's say you don't want to have that response where people feel they're getting bombarded. But at the same time, if that's what you're expected to do from the sponsor for the contract, it's really hard knack to kind of entwine it into that really natural, genuine post, but when you know you've got to do X number a month or something like that. Yeah, someone needs to explain to these sponsors that's not how advertising works, that it's a (laughs) a general, more like overall thing. But yeah, on terms of like what athletes, you know, regular athletes actually want from pros, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I feel like what the everyday age group triathlete wants from a pro is kind of related. I hate the word relatability, but relatability. They want to understand, they want to see themselves. They want to be inspired. They want to, you know, want guidance. They want tips. They want some kind of, you know, sense that they can learn from Miranda Carfrey or that they could be, we did a story about Renee Kylie last week, who was uh, very unhealthy, smoked like every day, was like, I don't know, overweight was had like different health problems and now she's you know a pro winning tons of races and a lot of people love that story because they can relate to that um so i do think it's interesting in terms of on the other end of the spectrum what people actually want from pros and want to see from pros yeah and that's another so i was obviously taking notes there so that i know what what people are wanting when i put my next instagram post out um it's interesting because again it's that you know and Pros, like anybody, are individual people with characters. And if the if people are wanting to see more of that insight into maybe that, you know, that guidance and that tips or the training sessions they're doing and that sort of thing, some that for some pros, that's actually really hard to share because they're actually quite private people, but they know they've got to push out certain information or that you know that those tips or or what is it that's relatable but they actually find it quite hard to do because it's not in their personality and character um so I think that there's a real there's a real hard balance for that as well whereas you know some people just yeah find it a bit more uncomfortable to put things out on social media but they know they they know they have to you also sometimes see the people who before races like delete all their twitter instagram accounts completely disappear because they want to do well at the race so it's you know it's a weird balance yeah it is i haven't tried that yet have you tried that the deleting everything i haven't deleted i try and depending yeah depending what yeah what race and stuff i try and limit um limit that interaction but also i actually find that sometimes before a race it really like i love that lead up in race week of where you're actually you're in race week and you're you are meeting people and you're seeing people that you you know in that normal world that we used to know you're seeing people from all over the world again that you haven't seen or you're you bump into someone in the local cafe and it's their first time doing the race and they're you know they're a newbie and you have those stories and like I love staying with the homestays because you find out about the 
And so it's the same, like sometimes I can use people's interactions on social media with me during that race week. It actually gives me an energy and a boost of kind of going, yeah, this is the sport that's awesome. Um, and this is what I love. As long as then you kind of can still, I still have to compartmentalize and then have my like quiet me time away from things so I don't get too too energetic and carried away. Yeah, I think I'm going to say as somebody who spends a lot of time on the internet, that week before a race, when like you have a lot of free time, like yeah. you can really put down some Twitter holes and it's not yes. a good idea. It's like, don't do that. <laughs> the other thing I've been seeing a lot from like all the pros these days is kind of, uh, I mean, it's off season ish, I guess we're calling it off season, winter season. And, uh, and I've been toying with what is hot and trendy right now it seems like cross-country skiing is hot and trendy everyone's cross-country skiing these days I think it's been that it's the winter equivalent of the gravel racing isn't it I think again with that sort of slightly uh the interrupted race schedule we're not really sure when races are going to come back and you know people took the opportunity to jump on gravel bikes or do different kinds of riding and adventures and they've done the same sort of as the snows come to those people uh, to be honest I've wanted to do cross-country skiing for years but I live, I norm, normally live summer to summer. And then this year I was like, okay, it looks like I'm going to be in win, in winter for winter, in a win, in a Northern Hemisphere for winter. Brilliant. I'm going to go out and try try the cross-country skiing. But Girona's a little bit too far away. And then I've had some stupid little niggles mm. that, of injury. So actually doing cross-country skiing, would I don't think my coach would be very impressed if I did. Um, but I think, you know, like, you know, Heather Jackson, someone that's done cross-country skiing for a long time, I think, in the off-season. And then you've seen people like Laura Phillips doing it and all the guys in sort of Europe, Andy Dreitz. And then I've seen um, some of the people over in the States. I think snowshoeing as well seems to be something that people are looking into and getting. Jackie Herring's a big fan of that. And she actually, I think she's a, some snowshoe national champion, I think. And she's she organizes events. And I think um, she says it, massively helped her running and technique actually come I saw um I think I saw Melindy El Melindy Elmore who was a she now is sort of a marathon runner for Canada but was triathlete runner triathlete now runner she was trying it um I do think like for for me here in Girona gravel bikes have still passed over into into winter because especially if the roads are a bit sort of wetter, slippier, a bit icier, it's a lot easier and nicer. You can still get a really great ride in on gravel. Um, also with lockdown restrictions as well and like limiting potentially where, how far we can ride out, out of the town and the province. Like we're lucky that right behind us, we've got hills. Um, and so you can get on a gravel bike and you can get lost for hours in the hills. Whereas you, if it was a road bike or if you're on your TT bike, you'd kind of be doing the same hill rep or the same loop because it's just not that variety in the closer proximity. Um, yeah, I mean, we yeah. have a bunch of stories on, and I will include the links on like how to get started cross country skiing, how to get why you should snowshoe run, how to get started gravel riding. Gravel riding it always cracks me up because guys, people have been riding on dirt roads for years. They didn't have to buy fancy equipment. You don't have to. I I ride my like ten year old road bike yep. on the dirt roads it's it's fine it's not a problem yeah. <laughs> so you don't need to buy new stuff um but yeah there's all these like hot trendy things that are kind of that we're seeing over this whole like covid times over over the winter now and they come in these spurts and then all the cross-country skier gear is like sold gear is sold out at yes. main stores now yeah and, yeah. and it's funny because uh, so if we go back actually now you've said that that links into actually going back to sponsorship and brands with bikes and also brands is them like if the athletes are now you know if you talk about a rider that just rides road but then you look at a rider who's got who can do road who can do gravel mountain bike track you know and has a broader appeal and can ride a range of their brands then that potentially is a lot more appealing now to brands because of the way we are looking at these different things and, and and it might be the same with skiing if you've got athletes that are suddenly sort of crossing over into the the skiing and the, the snow sports of winter like they have a different value proposition as well now because they're kind of covering covering yeah that's true i elements. saw um Kate Courtney, the mountain bike world champion. Who yes. I love. Uh, yes, I love too. She, she was all posted because she's a mountain biker and she's sponsored by Scott, but Scott also makes skis. So then she was like out skiing and posting okay. all of her Scott skis. So, you know, it's so maybe this is why all these athletes have taken up all these yeah. other sports yeah. to promote their sponsors. Yes. Yeah. But I don't know. There is just something I think as much as I, 
I I don't hate winter, but I'm just not properly equipped for it. <laughs> so um, I do like my summer to summer living, but I do want to get when I get the chance, like to really go back. I used to ski a little bit younger, not to any level, but I'd love to go, give cross country skiing a try. Um, I think that appeals probably to our endurance endurance nature of yeah, the sport. Yeah, I, I do it a bunch. It's very fun, yeah. guys. So yeah. Um, yeah, it is funny. All the pros now are finally uh, experiencing winter. I'm here in Boulder, <laughs> and uh, it was quite cold last month. And I was at the pool, and there was the whole pro, like the pro squad swim, the same, whatever. And they were all like, what is this winter? This is like the first time I've ever I've been in winter. Like they've never had to deal with it. <laughs> I, I, had to, I had to defrost my car the other day, the windscreen. And I was like, oh, I don't have a scraper or anything. Because I'm like, just... What is this like? Oh, it's not. Oh, it actually needs to put the heater on to like get the windscreen clear. <laughs> I thought about doing a whole story about a pro's first winter. It'll be great. So. Yeah, yeah. And we had actually we had snow last week as well. Like not in town, we just had the rain, but very close. Like up on the hill was snow, and everyone was quite excited about that. I mean, yeah, the Pyrenees are an hour away, so there's plenty of snow up there, but you don't you don't get it. And so it was quite exciting last week <laughs> to get the snow. <laughs> You're like things that happened in COVID times. We're all, yeah. you know, um, well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Sid. And then hopefully, you know, people found it informed. If anyone has questions, they should email them in and uh, and we'll put and we'll put Sid on it. Get her to answer your questions. Brilliant. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. This week, Barry Siff, longtime USA Triathlon board president. I feel like one of the originals back from the 80s, right? That's when you got involved in triathlon. Yeah. So He's here this week to talk to us kind of about what he's seen over the years, what it means to be USAT board president. And I wanted to start by how you even got involved in triathlon in the first place. I mean, you started out as a marathoner. Yeah. Yeah. I was a tennis player in college. Um, and then, you know, my first job was in Detroit, Michigan, and my boss was a runner. So I somehow, you know, got interested in running and, and uh, saw in the newspaper that if you could run five miles, you can run a marathon in three months. <laughs> And so I did that, you know, I did three months of training, ran my first marathon, never picked up a tennis racket again. So I started marathoning. Uh, and then I, then I ended up moving to Omaha, Nebraska, which actually had this incredible triathlon community. I mean, great triathlon community and tons of local races within huh. an hour and a half or two hours between Iowa and Nebraska and Missouri. And uh, yeah, I got into a master's program there, met all these triathletes actually was on one of the first sponsored triathlon teams ever, you know in the midwest maybe in the country i mean it was in the mid 80s and we had all these you know day glow kits and we got bikes and we got gym memberships and there were five or six of us and uh, we were the bomb you know matt, <laughs> matt carmichael was unbeatable in the midwest until tim DeBoom came along and they had a pretty good rivalry for a little bit so yeah you know that's how i got started in in uh in omaha and it grew from there and uh so you've never so you've never played tennis since then is what you're saying i picked up my racket a racket maybe once or twice those new big what i call the big rackets because i never played with one of those and uh i'm so competitive that it was just disheartening to pick it up and not be able to just smash the ball and <laughs> But um, I'm intrigued again. A couple of the recent videos of Beyond Borg and Gamma Vilas uh, on Netflix or Amazon got me turned interested back on. And okay, I okay, may start back again. All right. So you, um, the first sponsored team. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. What did that? So what does that entail? Like, what was it like in the '80s? Kind it was, of. It was amazing. We were like the only. You know, we, we would go to these local races in like Norfolk, Nebraska, or oh gosh, small little towns in Iowa. And the five of us would be all decked out in the exact same, you know, colors and, and uh, the same bikes. Uh, a bike shop sponsored us and got us Bianchi, really nice Bianchi bikes. Uh, we were team Alpha try whatever. I can't remember the name of the bike shop, but anyway, and then we got this fitness club membership and, you know, triathlon was quite, quite big in, in Nebraska, Iowa, Kansas City, that whole area. There were many more local races, I feel, then than there may be now. Hmm. Many more. And they were, you know, it was, it was really fun. Very low-key. Um, but, yeah, there weren't too many other spon what I would call sponsored 
teams. Right, right. So it sounds like, I mean, I was going to ask you what triathlon was like in the 80s, but it sounds like it was much more grassroots, much more local, much more like yeah. just make it up as you go kind of thing. It, it, it really was. But then you had, you know, this thing called Ironman. <laughs> and, and, and of course, there weren't any half Ironmans then that, you know, quote unquote, 70.3s or whatever. To qualify for Kona, for example, you know, first race I went to was, well, I went to Kona in 1986 to watch because some of the mass, two, two people on our master's team had qualified and were going to race. And I thought, God, I got to see this. So I, I went out there and um, it was amazing. And then I went to qualify in 87 at Whiskey Dick Triathlon in Ellensburg, Washington, uh, which was quite the experience. And I raced my first Ironman uh, Kona in, in 88 as a result. The, the qualification, of course, back in the 80s, you could do the Boulder Peak Triathlon and qualify. The so Boulder it was just kind of certain local races. Yeah, yeah, they were probably, I don't know the number, 15, 16, but they, they were a lot of Olympic distance and different. You know, there was a triathlon in Evergreen, Colorado, that you could qualify at. Hmm. Um, there were actually three in, Nebraska, in, uh, in Nebraska out of the whole country. So... Yeah, I mean, there were the classics, Memphis and May, Leon's, et cetera. Uh, but it wasn't nearly as competitive as, as it is now, obviously. Um, and but, but the grassroots racing was true grassroots and just fun and, and very much low key, as opposed to now, um, depending on where you live, it still can be quite, you know, high end, uh, intimidating um, and, and really much more sophisticated than it was then. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in Boulder. I think the local races here are all super competitive and intense yeah. and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you see that pretty much everywhere now or, huh. or it's not, it's not just Boulder. I know, you know, having lived in Boulder and built the, the triathlon racing scene in Boulder in the, um, in two thousands, uh, you know, I'm, I'm super familiar with it, but I know that we all think we live in this bubble called Boulder and, the reality is there are some other places in America that have really good triathletes and right, right. on scenes. Yeah. So you, uh, I mean, besides, you know, doing triathlon and, and marathon, you got into adventure racing and ultras too, right? Like, which yeah. is kind of crazy. Why'd you take it, take it to that extreme? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I had just been doing triathlons up until, um, 1997. I did, um, Ironman Germany. It was called Ironman Germany then. It was owned by Ironman. Now it's um, Roth. I mean, it was in Roth. It was now the challenge, big challenge race. And then in January 1998, I got fired. Um, Conagra, I was in a big, you know, big company, um, $7 billion company. I was like the number two or three person. And, uh, and uh, the board directors removed us all, the entire executive team in January of 98. And... Um, you know, I'd worked 20 years hard in the, in the, in the industry, uh, while also being a triathlete. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do work-wise, life-wise, whatever. I had an office and a, a, what was called secretary then, now an administrative assistant for a year. And I would go in this office for a couple hours every day. I'd bike over there and figure out what I was going to do. And I, I had seen Eco Challenge on TV, much like in the triathlon world where people say, oh, I saw Julie Moss cross the finish line or I saw Iron Man on TV. You know, I saw Eco Challenge and I thought, oh, man, that's so cool. And then lo and behold, I saw a little poster in Fort Collins, Colorado, where I was living, where a couple adventure racers were going to be speaking at this place called Mountain Shop and on like a Thursday night. So I went. And there were like six people in the audience and these two speakers. And I was just blown away with how cool they were and, and what adventure racing entailed. And uh, I thought, wow, I got to hang out with these guys. So I went up to them and said, can I, can I play with you? You know. <laughs> and at that point, all I ever did in my life was swim, bike, run. I had never right. been on a mountain bike, never been on ropes, paddle. So I started uh, hanging with them, you know, and, and um, yeah, I, from there, it exploded, and we created a business called Mountain Quest Adventures. We were put on camps to uh, train people in adventure racing. We put on races uh, in Colorado that were incredibly successful. Two of them were on television. 
it was amazing. And then we raced as a, you know, uh, Liz Caldwell and I became incredible partners uh, in adventure racing. We wrote the first uh, book on adventure racing, Adventure Racing, The Ultimate Guide. We put on camps. We did speaking tours for REI. And, of course, we did all the major races around the world. It was just uh, an incredible experience. So for, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I don't know how much our listeners know about adventure racing, besides having it just been on Amazon Prime, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, Other yeah. than that, I don't know how much people know. Tell us, like, what does it entail? When you say adventure racing, I mean, what does that mean? Like, yeah, what think, do you do? Yeah, so true adventure racing, ultimately it transitioned into the word expedition racing. Hmm. It's multi-day um, racing, continuous. You're on the clock, you know, 24-7, uh, very little sleep. And it's any mode of travel that does not require a motor, basically. Hmm. So, so we did everything from horseback riding to inline skating to ice skating to skiing to rope climbing uh, to huge rappels on ropes. A lot of rope work, uh, whitewater rafting, serious whitewater rafting. Um, and, of course, the standards were trekking which would be running if you're a really fast team. But the problem is most of the legs are like 25 to 50 miles. So you're hiking really fast. You're carrying all your own stuff till you get to the next transition area. Uh, It was all by navigation, by map and compass. Uh, You couldn't use any GPS signals, anything like that. Uh, So you could get lost very, very, very easily. And you didn't know the course until you got the maps the day of the race, you know, when the race started. You just knew what disciplines you'd be doing. You didn't know any idea for how long or anything like that. So, and it's a team event, four to five people per team normally. And so you've, and, and co-ed. So you've got to really gel as a team, work together as a team. And what you saw on Amazon with the uh, Eco Challenge Fiji uh, is exactly what the sport was. In fact, the final Eco Challenge was Fiji in 2003. Right, right. Or two. Two, I think it was. And we were there. We raced that race. And a lot of the things we saw on TV was the same thing. Exact half of it was the same course. Um, but yeah, it was it's a very, very challenging. The last race we did was seven days. It took us seven days to do and we slept eleven hours. Oh, in seven days? In seven days. Yeah. Oh man. We had a rule on our team, Liz and I had a rule that we would race the first 40 hours. Any teammate we would bring on, and we brought on different teammates for every race, depending upon where we were racing. And we had to race the first 40 hours with no sleep. And, um, you know, we did it. You know, that was kind of our rule of thumb. Do you start hallucinating? All my friends who have done multi-day, they start hallucinating. Did you start hallucinating? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always hallucinate. I mean, that's that's pretty much a given. Uh, My first hallucination was pretty epic. It was my first expedition race. I, Like I said, I I first heard about it in March of 98. In May of 98, I did a 24-hour race. And in June of 98, I did a five-day race. And in that five-day race, I was paired up with a team called Toy Soldiers. And they were all like professional mountain bikers. I'd been mountain biking for three months. And so I'm following them the whole time. And it was middle of the night. We were in this village. And and uh, they're far ahead of me. And I see these wa- wild pack of dogs chasing them. And I'm scared shitless. You know, I can't stop. So I kind of go slow. And then I give 100% of everything I had to go through this dog pack and I'm got, I get chills thinking about it, and I go flying past my teammates, and they catch up to me and say, what are you doing? And I said, well, those freaking dogs. Are you kidding me? They scared the hell out of me. And, of course, there were no dogs. <laughs> and, and, but, I, you know, you see them. Uh, tons of other examples. But, yeah, hallucinations are interesting. Uh, it doesn't – it just means you're tired, you know. Right, right, right. So, so I mean, that's a. Uh, it sounds kind of crazy. What's the craziest thing that ever happened in all of your like around the world? Yeah, racing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how you define crazy. I mean, right. we were we were lost in a jungle in Brazil for over twenty four hours with two or three other teams. And when you're in a true jungle, there's a canopy, so there's mm-hmm. no, no light. I mean, it's very kind of dark, and you have no sense of direction. You have a compass, but you don't know where if you the definition of being lost is if you don't know where you are. We had right. know where we were. And we wandered for well over 24, 30 hours in a race. 
just to get out of the jungle. We couldn't get out, couldn't find our way out. It was massive. This is uh, Mata Atlantica in Brazil. So that was, I would call crazy. I was in a race where my finger got totally smashed in the first hour of an expedition Hmm. race. We were whitewater swimming, which is where you're on a boogie board going down whitewater. And my hand smashed into a rock and my finger went perfectly sideways. And so I had to race for, I think that was six days with this busted up finger just duct taped to my next finger. Um, So yeah, there are a lot of amazing stories. You know, um, I can remember racing in Tibet which was one probably the most memorable race. And we, in one night, we were mountain biking at night, 10 or 11 o'clock at night in snow. And by 6 a.m., 7 a.m., we were whitewater swimming in sweltering temperatures down in Nepal because we had made, a I think, a 10,000-foot descent on our mountain bikes from snow to, like, 90 degrees. So, yeah, it's great memories, and it's an amazing sport. It's just too bad that Survivor, Mark Burnett, got so successful with Survivor that he walked away from Eco Challenge. Is that oh. what happened? I can't decide if you're making this sound very appealing or very not appealing. <laughs> yeah, well, based on how many people saw it on Amazon and then are trying to get into uh, Patagonia this year, if it happens, it, I think a lot of people get turned on just like just like Iron Man. I think the last thirties yeah. with Iron Man. I mean, now we take Iron Man like, oh yeah, it's an Iron Man. But you know, most most average people think you gotta be crazy to do an Iron Man. And I think right. it's true with adventure racing. It is a lot of triathletes getting into it and a lot of just endurance, you know, a lot of ultra runners and things. Um but yeah, yeah. no, for sure. We've heard um quite I mean, I think we even have people on our staff putting together applications for the next eco challenge. Like everyone wants to do it now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I mean it turned on the typical person who's obsessed with triathlon would definitely wanna, you know, if they watch that, they're gonna want to do it. I got so many emails from people asking what it takes to do it. And I think there's a lot of naivete, but but people pull it off, you know, it, you never know who's gonna be successful, who's not. The team aspect of of the sport is can't be over over pronounced yeah so it was it was really some amazing years so this is i mean you were basically a vice president in conagra food executive got fired and this is how you found yourself went into adventure racing started a multi-sport company yeah yeah started 54 30 sports right and so that ended up being really big i mean ultimately you sold it to iron man it ran like all kind of the races you know in the boulder air colorado area Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really, that was a, that was some of the best years of my life. 2004 was the best year of my life. I (laughs) married Jody and uh, got our dog jackpot and uh, started 5430. So it was an amazing year. And that series of races still remains one of the greatest series of, of uh, triathlons, I think, ever anywhere. And I think all the people in Boulder who did them on a regular basis, I think will attest to that. All the new folks don't know about it, but it was, you know, you got so much and it was such a community. All the races sold out, you know, in early January, 15, 1800 people. And uh, the pricing was amazing and the events were phenomenal. Yeah, we had a lot of fun and the pros loved it. We had $80,000 in prize money by the time we were done, Um, Hmm. you know, going to the pros so all the local team people came from all over for that race why did you um i mean obviously being a race director now is you know very hard it it takes a lot of work what did you kind of learn over the years of like building up a a pretty big multi-sport race business yeah number one customer service attention to the athlete giving a lot more than you're getting you know we were priced really effect really effectively um compared to you know, comparable events, but we gave so much. I mean, if you won your age group, no matter what your age group was, you got, first of all, one of Jody's amazing trophies that you a lot of people have heard about. They've been, uh, Joanna Zeiger, we were on the phone the other day, and she still has all her 5430 trophies out and only one Ironman thing out. Um, they were all handmade out of recycled stuff. Everyone. So you got this beautiful award. You also got your choice of either a pair of running shoes, a Timex watch, or some swim goggles. First, second, third got a prize like that. 
um, in addition to, to that. We also had age group prize money. Um, we had $15,000 awarded to the top age groupers at the end of the season. So people like Wendy Mader and Mark Van Ackeren, uh, they walked away with $2,500 checks as an age grouper. So you know, it was just giving. We had a huge raffle. We were totally sustainable. Um, we won um, awards in, in uh, Colorado and in Boulder for our, our sustainability efforts. We were off the grid. We were run by solar power. We had a solar company and put together a little solar uh, truck for us just for the event. So it's it, it just that. Um, and it was an event. It was some, it was the place to be. It wasn't just a race. People hung out afterward. There was beer, um, beer, good food, uh, lots of great. The shirts were awesome. They still remain awesome. They were the first technical shirt, you know, one of the first oh, really? gave technical shirts first races that gave goodie bags in a, in a backpack, a sling bag or a recyclable bag. It was usually a shopping bag. Before that, it was always in like plastic bags or paper bags. So it was unique. It was just a good experience. I think there are people now that do that. You know, Steve Delmonte at Delmo Sports mm-hmm. in Philadelphia stands out to me as a real, when I, when I listen to him speak and I see him and I see what he's doing, you know, Jody and I smile and we say, yeah, that's, He's going to be successful. He gives. He cares uh, about his athletes, and uh, just a great. You know, you got to create that community. And then, I mean, obviously, event. I don't. When did you sell it to Iron Man? Like 2010? 2000. Yeah. And um, I mean, obviously, like markets changing. I don't know if you want. Did you want to get out of the multi sport business, or was it more like, oh, it's just getting you know pretty competitive? Pretty- yeah. I- I've, you know, throughout my life, I've done things for about five years or so, and then and then changed up, you know. Um, I like doing different things. So when we went into 5430, we were conscious about five or six years, we would probably get out of it. And then I was asked uh, in March of, of 2009 to run for Boulder City Council. <laughs> it was really this group of people, very influential people in the city, felt like they needed someone on there who was an athlete in, in during sport, you know, it was Boulder. And I'll never forget the phone call because we had been in the business for five years. I didn't know if I would do it or not. I got off the phone, talked to Jody. Literally five minutes later, I called them up and said, okay. And I put the business up for sale. I mean, we literally put the word out that we want to sell 5430 sports and um, got, you know, enormous interest. We had huh. eight different groups offering to buy it. And ultimately, we uh, made the deal with Iron Man. Interesting. Did you end up winning city council or not? No, thank goodness. <laughs> oh, my God. I I devoted as much. I, I gave so much. And the people in Boulder know that. I went to every city council meeting. I stayed till the end. I went door to door. I mean, I did everything. and But I wasn't incumbent. And I literally, it was like a half a percentage that I lost the final seat by. And, um, but thank goodness that happened because otherwise I never would have moved to Arizona. You know, my life has been pretty terrific since and looking at what it takes to be on that crazy city council. uh, I'm pretty, I I wouldn't, yeah, yeah. I've been to a lot of city council meetings. It's uh, a fun time. I can't believe it was just something different and challenging. And it was a great experience those months of campaigning because I learned all this stuff that I had no, I mean, homelessness and the environment and and just everything it takes to run a city. And um, yeah, it was a great experience. But no, I I didn't. I was the first person that I I was the, if the the five were elected, I was number six. So Hmm. it turned out great. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, it's interesting. And then obviously, I mean, that was pretty much when you went on to become USAT, went on to be on the USA Triathlon board, eventually became the president. How yeah. does one, for like most of us, like most regular triathletes, it's like, oh, the board, the president, that's the thing that like yeah. up there. So how does one become involved in that? Well, you know, you got to give, you know, it's always, it goes back to like what I said about 5430 and what I think everything I've done in my life is you got to give more than you get. You got to give you know, make a commitment. It's volunteer. I put in tremendous hours. Um, I ran for what was then the Rocky Mountain Region board seat in 2011. And uh, I was interested. What happened was I went to a USAT meeting and it was in 2009 or 10. It was my first meeting I ever went to. And 
they were talking about making a uh, a recommendation to all the race directors across the country to be sustainable, to go green, to try to recycle and all this. And the uh, the race director committee voted against it. They said, no, we shouldn't be telling people what to do. And it was only a recommendation. I went crazy with this other guy from Maine. We were like, we couldn't believe it. Uh, how can you do that? And so I really was very vocal. And they said, well, look, if you're going to, you know, get involved. So I immediately, right. I immediately got on the race director committee. I think I became chair real quick. And then they asked me to run for the board. So I ran for the board. And because of my mailing list, you know, at 5430 Sports, I mean, we had a mailing list with 10,000 people. So I easily won and, you know, became vice president in a year because the vice president was removed from the board. And oh yeah. so I got put in that place. And then the president had a heart attack in 2013 due to the stress of the job. It, it was a really bad time at USA Triathlon and he ended up very ill and I became president, you know? So huh. yeah, just, I, I, how to become president, you know, you just work your way up. I mean, right now there's someone on the board that I think will be president in the next year or two. And, and she, you know, has been a hard worker, has given, given a lot to the sport. I think he mm. would be involved and give and contribute. And I mean, obviously anyone could just run for their like regional representative, any USAT member triathlete can just run for yeah, their region. Yeah, a little bit more complicated today than it was then. Back then, yeah, all you did was run for your region. We had 10 regions back then. Now we've done away with regions and it hasn't been announced yet, but there are further changes coming. Okay. So it's really becoming more of an appointment. It's becoming more of a nominating governance committee that, you know, you put your name in and they evaluate who would fit best on the board rather than a popularity contest. The problem in the past was, as I said, I had an incredible mailing list. There was no way so anybody could beat me. I had the biggest list of people liked me. So it was a popularity contest. But what you need isn't just popular people. You need talented people. You need lawyers. Right. You need marketing people. You need finance people. So now it's more of an appointment. Um, and the other movement in governance leadership is is having independent directors, people who don't really know that much about the sport, but just have skills in leadership. Hmm. So it's definitely changing a lot. But I urge people to get involved. And USAT is a good organization to get involved with. It's got incredible leadership and they listen. I think the difference today in 2021 versus maybe 2014 or 13 was the leadership listens to its constituency. I mean, the race directors, um, the race directors know that, you know, Rocky has led a, a great, um, a great movement toward a culture of listening to its members, its athletes and its race directors, its coaches, volunteers, officials, et cetera. Oh yeah. Well, I talk to them all the time and they definitely, uh, know yeah. what the athletes are saying. So. Yeah, it's good. It's really important. It wasn't always that way at all. Huh. Yeah. And so what, I mean, tell us a little bit about while you were on the USA triathlon board for seven years there, I mean, what kind of, how does, what kind of decisions are you making? What kind of initiative, like, how does that work? I mean, for yeah. most of us, it might be like, okay, so they just meet and approve like fees, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. what, what do you do That's actually? Pretty big stuff. Um, yeah. You try to stay away from the little stuff which is really hard because a lot of us just, you know, I mean, wetsuit temperature. I mean, you know, we, we care about that. We, you got to stay away from the weeds, you know, Rocky and his team quote staff, they do the day, they, they do the day to day. Ultimately the board of directors is responsible for, for the mission, for the strategic planning, for the big picture and the financial responsibility and the legal responsibility and the ethical responsibility. So you want to make sure you got enough money in the bank. You want to make sure you're doing everything by the book and you want to be sure you, you know, you're, you're living toward that strategic plan. If you say you're going to, uh, NCAA is a really good example. When I was president or vice president, that's when we initiated the NCAA deal. Well, that involved the board of directors hugely because we were investing $3 million and that's a lot of money at USA triathlon. And, we had to be convinced that we were going to not only we were going to get there, which we're mm -hmm. on the verge of getting there right now. The USA Triathlon Foundation was established when I was president, um, which is a big deal. 
you know, legally and how you're going to operate it. Um, how is it going to work? Who's going to lead it, et cetera. We bought our building when I was president, um, which was in Colorado Springs, in Colorado Springs, which was a several, several million dollar investment. So the financial investments are really important. The strategic, you know, where are we going to put our focus? Uh, the board of directors has a lot of a lot of say in that. Right now, because of Rocky's tremendous leadership, it's really a matter of the board being sure that Rocky and his staff are doing the things they say they're going to do. So at the final meeting of this year, we, we you know we got a report from every department. Here's what we said we're going to do. Here's where we're at. Here's what we're going to do in 2021. And, you know, the board needs to stay attuned to that, sensitive to it, and offer help where they can. But it's, it's, it's actually much bigger stuff today than it was, you know, in 2012, 2013, 14, when I was on, we, we'd be talking about where the, you know, regional championships should be and certain race directors who, you know, we shouldn't support, whatever. I mean, it was getting really into management as inter- versus leadership. Hmm. Okay. And what would you, okay, so now obviously you've been doing this for a while. What kind of wisdom did you, because you retired yeah. last year officially. Yeah. So what kind yeah. of, what do you, what kind of wisdom did you pass on? What lessons did you learn? What do you think they should be working on moving forward? Well, I, I, I learned the number one lesson of collaboration. Um, I learned that, and this is why we made a change in 2017, um, which I led uh, to have a new CEO and a new leadership. I learned the lesson that you got to play with everybody. You're all on the same team. You're not competing with Iron Man. Um, you're not competing with anybody. You know, you got to bring everybody together. And if you're the governing body, um, that's your responsibility. And we weren't doing a good job of that. And I know when we interviewed uh, Rocky, uh, that was his, you know, and he'll tell you in this, I've seen him do interviews and he says, you know, that was one of the things that turned him on was the strategic plan where we, as a board said, we need to collaborate. We need to work well with others and we need to support our race directors and our community a lot, lot better. And that's where Rocky, you know, won the position and has proven to be a great leader. So I think I've learned, um, you know, I think humility might be this word that's used a lot that that I've never understood because I've never considered myself humble. I'm honest about that, uh, but I'm learning that. You know, I think I learned it through my handball experience. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, you know, I think collaboration and, and, um, again, working, working with others really well and supporting, supporting your constituent groups. You just mentioned hand, so handball, Yeah. you now are like involved with team, like team USA handball. Where did that come from? Yeah, that Why came, handball? You know, it's really, it's really funny how that came about. Cause when I look back, I have a file and in, in 2016, 2016, I'm in the middle of my presidency, but I, I knew this sport called handball that I had seen in the Atlanta Olympics. It's an amazing sport. It's phenomenal. It's exciting. I have yet to meet anyone, anyone who has seen it and not said the same thing that, wow, that's really cool. Why don't we have it here? Every single person said, and if you see it in person, forget it. You're, you're like, I want to play. And so I put together, I had a group of people in 2016 and we went physically to colorado springs and met the leadership of u.s olympic committee at that time with the president and ceo of handball sitting at the table and we walked in as arrogant as hell and said you guys haven't done anything in two or three decades you're the same today as you were in the 80s we have a better plan and we want to take over the sport and we, we had a presentation. We had a, a, it was really interesting. I still have it, 2016. And, uh, you know, they're sitting there aghast. But the USOC agreed with us 100%. I mean, they were like, oh, my God, hallelujah. We're going to get some new leadership. Well, we ended up walking away from it. We couldn't get the TV deal that we had, you know, somewhere, blah, blah, blah. And in the Rio Olympics, I went up to the leadership USOC. I said, look, at one day I'm going to just jump over to handball. Well, once Rocky came on board um, and took hold and, you know, we had transitioned and I had gotten them 
more familiar with the sport and things like that. I went back to the USOC and said, I'm ready. That was it. So You're like, give me handball. I got it. Give me handball. I had never touched a hand. You know, people, I remember my early podcasts, they say, well, have you been playing long? I've never even touched a handball. And I, I'd never been on a court. I'd never seen a game in person except in the Olympics. So, you know, I just knew that it was a great sport and with good leadership, different leadership from the outside of the sport, I thought we could just boom, we'd be in an instant success. And so I got in there and, and it was very eye-opening. I was no employees, no employees, one person. You were, you were the chief financial officer, high performance director, right. um, everything. And, you know, I'm, I'm picking the, you know, helping determine who's going to go to the Pan Am games. I don't even know what positions. I remember being on a podcast and I was asked, you know, tell us a little bit about the positions of the sport. I said, I don't know the positions. <laughs> That's why we have coaches. And boy, that, that drew some ire from people. I could see that, yeah. Yeah, so it was a neat experience, a great experience. But, um, you know, we definitely made a, a ton of progress financially and, and in every which way. I think we made a lot of progress. But 2020 was a tough year for me personally. Uh, you know, I lost my son. My son died from uh, cancer in April. I think that had a devastating effect on my psyche and my ability to deal with um, minor things in my life. I realized what's well, important. Sure, yeah. you know, so I ended up walking away um, from that in uh, June. I, I announced it and I think it was effective at the end of July or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, but it was, it was a really, it was a neat experience, you know, and the team right now is over in Europe getting ready to play in the first First time in like two decades playing in the world championships. So oh, I'm proud okay. of the, the progress that the, the squad has made. And, and the new CEO took over finally uh, this week. And um, we had a great discussion. And, and I see great things on the horizon for, for handball. But for me, I'm, I'm done with handball. I'm now, have, you actually, have you actually played handball yet? I have not played handball. <laughs> I had a handball around here somewhere. You know, I, I know what a handball is now, and I do know most of the positions, so I learned a little bit. But, yeah, it's tremendous. And, and my involvement in the U.S. Olympic Committee as a result of that was also really interesting and um, and understanding all the, you know, again, governance and politics, et cetera, which I also learned um, when I was on the board, the executive board of World Triathlon, previously ITU. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't run for re-election this year, and I just looked at this year as a year of transition and uh, figuring out what, what the next thing is going to be uh, that maybe isn't triathlon. It's definitely not handball. It's probably not adventure racing, although if our team does get into Patagonia, if Patagonia happens, I think we, we have a good shot of getting in. And You mean the the, the cha- eco-challenge Patagonia the yeah. next season? You guys might do that? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think – right now I think Amazon walked away from the sponsorship, mm-hmm. so I think they're probably may not be happening. We haven't heard anything in months. So I was about to ask you, what is, I mean, obviously you're writing some columns for us now, which is, I mean, we'll include links to those in the show notes and, but what is your plans kind of, yeah. what, what is next on the, on the horizon? I don't, know. I don't know. You know, I just came back from 11 days in Kona. Oh, okay. I went over there uh, for two reasons. One was to figure out my next, to do a lot of thinking. I had a very formal process that I was going through to evaluate what that would be. And then my second thing was training. I, I rode and ran and swam a ton. And uh, I came, I think things are starting to take shape, but I, I don't know what it's going to be. I really don't. I, I kind of thought by now that I would would have found something and talked with someone that got me excited, but I've talked to a lot of people I haven't gotten excited yet. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I like writing, as you know, and I appreciate the opportunity to write for triathlete. Um, I had a book contract for twice now, uh, that I didn't follow through on. The book idea is still a great idea. I don't know if I want to spend the time writing it yet. Huh. But, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. We'll see. It'll come. It'll come just like adventure racing. You know, that took that took three months to figure out. And uh, now I'm older and maybe a little slower. So it might take five or six months. <laughs> and obviously a lot of the columns you've been writing for us and, like, the ideas you and I have talked about are kind of about – where endurance sports goes from here, like what happens next? What are the big issues that is tackling? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, what do you think kind of happens next with with 
you know, obviously triathlon and multi-sport, but yeah. even broader. Well, I'll, I'll give you a good example. You know, I, I think what we got to do. So I sit here, as you know, in Tempe, looking right out at the Ironman course and the, the run course, the swim course and the bike courses behind me. But I see every day um, so many new runners, walkers, roller skaters, which is big here, um, not inline skating, roller skating uh, and and bikers. And it's clear that these are new people to exercise. And we got to figure out a way to put our arms around those people. And I gave that speech last night to the, I was on the, I'm a member of the Tri Scottsdale Triathlon Club. And they had their annual meeting last night. And I, I came on it, you know, in Zoom. And I challenged them, you know, I said, that's, that's what we got to do. You want to get members, you got to figure out a way to put your arms around these new people. And it's not by signing them up for, you know, some kind of Olympic triathlon. It's just getting them into the sport a little bit, into events. And I know that the endurance community came up with the Endurance Sports Coalition uh, to try to get uh, money from the government during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Very successful. It was really good. They got Tough Mudder and Ironman and USA Triathlon, USA Cycling. Every Anybody who had any kind of feels, I think it was a couple hundred groups. And now they're not doing, I don't think they're doing anything. I think that's a group that could have a great future. I think we've got to get new people into the sport because quite frankly, it, 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 these sports aren't growing. I mean, running isn't growing, cycling isn't growing, triathlon isn't growing or wasn't. None of them are booming anymore because there are so many other things to do. I mean, we're, yeah. Jody, and, Jody and I are stand up paddling a lot, for example, and I'm going back into ultra running. So, you know, it's, it's, there's just so much to do out there. And if, but we got to provide events and we've got to support our race directors and we've got to be creative about how to get them. And uh, maybe that will be my next column for you in Triathlete Magazine. I think it will be, as a matter of fact, and what, what we can be doing, what do clubs like Boulder Tri Club, Tri Scottsdale, LA Tri Club, what are they doing? What can they be doing to get more people taking that first step into an event, an event. And the virtual events are doing a great job of that. Right. Oh, my God. I've done several virtual events, and I love it. Yeah. I mean, we've been, talk I mean, we've been talking a ton about how this new wave of people that we see coming. Like, how do we get them to triathlon? Now, it's hard without there being triathlons, but you have to you know, ease them. I know the virtual events are interesting. I've seen a lot of new formats. I really like the one where it's like a bracket, and you go and like – each go and do a course on your own time yeah. and then you like tear it off. Yeah. It's I think cool. that's kind of fun. Yeah. I, I, there's so many unique ones. I'm in the middle of a bad water, 267 mile race this month. You have to do 267 miles in January and it keeps me going. I mean, I, there's no way I'd be running eight or nine miles every single day uh, if it weren't for that. So it's motivating and I think the virtual events are getting a lot of new people. I and mean, I've talked with several mm -hmm. race directors and statistically there are a lot of new people doing their first events virtually. So now, now the trick is going to be making it really, really welcome for them to come into an in-person event, mm -hmm. really make them feel good about it and make it easy for them to do and not intimidating and make it fun and good bang for the buck. And because these virtual events are incredible. I mean, $35, you're getting a great shirt, you're getting a mail, you're getting this. I mean, it's really cool. And then now all of a sudden, if you give them a, 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 an in-person race and charge them 125 and they get the same freaking T-shirt, medal, and a water bottle, it's like, well, I'll go back to virtual. Because huh. financial, I mean, it's still money, you know? I mean, people, you know, triathlon's expensive. Yeah, yeah, and running's expensive. I mean, some of these marathons now are super expensive relative to the way they used to be, and relative to what people are willing to pay. So yeah, no, triathlon's very expensive. So yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Oh, here's my last question for you because we always kind of well, usually we end with a "Would you rather?" So here's my question: Would you rather do triathlon, adventure racing, or ultra running? T today, I would rather do ultra running. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm in an ultra running mindset right now. I still, um, you know, I've done, I've done so many events around the world and all kinds of events, but the only race that 
consistently for the last 15 years that I regret not doing early on is bad water. Mm. So I still have the vision of doing bad water uh, before I'm 75. <laughs> okay. All right. I feel like that's one that maybe will happen in the pandemic, right? It's very spaced out, very small. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it isn't their, their races, their series races are still postponed. So hmm. yeah, okay. which I, which is hard to understand, but, it, but I accept that. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for chatting with us, Barry. And I'll be sure to include the links to your columns. And I think uh, everyone to you right on. waiting for the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. And thanks again for all you're doing for the sport. Thanks to Sid and Barry for chatting with us today. As we said last week, we'll be talking to a range of people in triathlon this year. And Laura will be joining us each week to break down what's happening in the tri world. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review if you like what you hear.